You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Can immune intervention stop the disease process of type 1 diabetes? Joining us to discuss immunotherapy for type 1 diabetes is Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Psychology in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida, Dr. Jay Schuyler. Dr. Schuyler, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Steve. Glad to be with you. Jay, uh, you've been involved in this area for so long. Uh, First, let's just talk about type 1 diabetes and the current rates and prevalence that's going on, not only in the United States, but around the world. Actually, it's amazing. The, the, the rates are going up at a, at a fantastic rate, uh, rate, and particularly in people less than the age of five. Uh, and so something must be going on. It, it, the, rate, the, the rate of change is too rapid for it to be a change in genetics. So it's got to be something in the environment that's changing, that's precipitating the disease, and darn, I wish I knew what it was. Let's talk about some of the things that have been uh, talked about in recent studies like cow's milk or gluten. Do you know anything about that? The, the cow's milk hypothesis is interesting, but, uh, but probably there's less consumption of cow's milk uh, today than there has been in the past. And so whether that's, that's really uh, responsible for the increase is not clear. And, and being tested in Trigger right now, which is a study that's done in, in, in over 2,000 infants, is a study to see whether early introduction of cow's milk is actually a precipitant of the disease by taking a group and when, whenever they're done breastfeeding as formula, giving them either a cow's milk-containing formula or a cow's milk-free formula to see if that is responsible for the initial precipitation. But I doubt that that could be, even if it, and I think it it may very well play a role initially, but I doubt that it's responsible for the increase because the increase is, is occurring later and, and probably cow's milk consumption uh, in the Western world today during the ages that we're seeing it uh, is, is not increasing but rather decreasing. So uh, hard, to, hard to attribute it to that. Environmental influences that, that have been raised uh, uh, include things like enterovirus infections, uh, as, as, as a possible cause, or cleanliness as a possible reason for it to occur, that, which is an interesting sort of backwards way of thinking about it. It turns out if you activate the immune system generically early in life by being exposed to things like worm infections and other things, you, you turn on the protective component of the immune system in order to, to tackle those things, and that may also help prevent the disease. And, and as we've gotten cleaner, it turns out type 1 diabetes is going up. That was most profoundly seen when East Germany and West Germany merged together. And the rates of diabetes were uh, were higher in West Germany, which was very clean, a little dirtier in East Germany, much much more worm infections and other things going on. When they merged and and they cleaned up East Germany, the rate of diabetes in East Germany caught up to the rate in West Germany because they're the same genetic background. And um, and, and so that, that, that's one clue of this so-called hygiene hypothesis, that as we've cleaned up 
infant infections in general, we may have increased the risk of autoimmune disease. Obesity, no question, brings out an inflammatory component. And we all think that the islet is particularly sensitive to inflammatory issues. Uh, but the increases that we're seeing uh, in early life are not stimulated by obesity. That may account for the increase in adolescence, but it probably doesn't account for the increase in early life. Wow, that is so interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about the genetics in terms of autoimmunity. Um, you know, our listeners are not uh, experts in this area, neither am I. So can you give us like a, a autoimmunity 101 when it comes to type 1 diabetes? Yeah, it, it turns out that more than 50% of the genetic risk for type 1 diabetes is conferred by what we call our major histocompatibility system, uh, the thing that, that identifies immune cells one from the other uh, and, and how they present antigen. And, uh, and that accounts for most of the risk. It, it turns out also that some of the other uh, risk, the, the other genes that, that seem to play a role, although relatively uh, minor role compared to, uh, to, to that of the MHC, um, are also immune-related genes. And so it, it may very well be that, that, that the, the vast majority of the many genes that we know, we know of at least 14 that contribute to type 1 diabetes, but the vast majority of them are, are, uh, affect the immune system in one way or another. Now, tell us a little bit about the genetics. Like, as you know, and, and the audience knows that's listened before, I have type 1 diabetes. No one else in my family has type 1. Tell us about some of the risks of passing it on and if your parents have it, and just so that they can maybe discuss with their patients in their clinics really hard to, to, to pin that down. And, and the reason is that even if you have the genetic risk, you don't necessarily manifest the disease because of, of these environmental triggers that we were talking about that need to operate on the background of the genetic risk. And so um, the genetic risk is a, is, a, is a prerequisite for developing the disease, but, but it may not occur in, in, uh, in individuals who have a very high genetic risk. Uh, and so uh, it, it really is... Um, it's a combination of the two things, and, and that's why it skips generations and it skips around. And it turns out that uh, in the United States, probably 85% of people who develop new onset type 1 diabetes at the time they're developing the disease do not know of another individual uh, in their family who has type 1 diabetes, even though we know there's a profound genetic component. Uh, so what that's saying is that really it's this combination of genetics and environment, which is the thing that does it. Yeah, that's interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jay Schuyler. We are discussing immunotherapy for type 1 diabetes. Well, Jay, let's talk about uh, what's going on now in terms of research protocols that actually can prevent or alter the immunodestruction of the insulin-producing islet cells. We're, we're, we're involved uh, as a diabetes community in testing a number of different ways of altering the immune system to see whether or not we can, we can uh, disrupt the disease process. And, and so some of it is using various kinds of, of vaccine approaches uh, that would give a specific antigen that is involved in triggering the immune response and seeing whether or not if you present it to the immune system in a different way, you'll stimulate protection instead of, uh, instead of disease. Uh, and um, others are trying to, um, uh, other, other strategies are designed to try to, to disrupt 
the 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 immune signaling pathways that that lead to destruction of the of the insulin producing cells in the pancreas and and you can you can uh, attack a number of different cells it turns out um in 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 so doing uh they include the the T lymphocytes which we think are mediators of the disease the B lymphocytes which which uh, provide help to the T lymphocytes in uh, in triggering the disease, or um, uh, what, one of the things we're testing at the moment is co-stimulation blockade. In order to turn on a T cell, not only does it need to see that antigen we just talked about that might precipitate the disease, but it also has to have another signal, which we call co-stimulation, to to be activated. And 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 one of the thoughts is if you could block that that co-stimulation signal, uh, you would shut down the T cell's ability to to cause its badness and its damage. So uh, those are the kinds of ways that that we're we're approaching things, different components of the immune system, uh, and um, and seeing whether or not that will lead to uh, a disruption of the disease process and an ability to delay the loss of pancreas beta cell function in new onset type 1 diabetes, which in itself um, has benefit, as you know, from being a participant in the DCCT, that the people who maintain beta cell function uh, had less of a risk of severe hypoglycemia, more than 50% decreased risk, and and about a third of the risk of developing uh, progression in retinopathy. So maintaining beta cell function in new onset diabetes uh, is is really very important. And um, uh, the other the other place that we're trying to do it is test those strategies in preventing the disease from occurring in the first place. Yeah, you know, let me just go back to the uh, preventing diabetes in the first place. You know, I, I follow the literature fairly well, and it seems like we've we've actually cured millions of mice with diabetes. But when they try to take those interventions that are successful in mice and bring them to humans, they don't work. So, I mean, it, it's a little frustrating, at least for someone like myself, waiting for a cure. Or, uh, and it seems like we're going to have to use some combination of these interventions. And not, I've never seen one get even close to making a major effect on humans with type 1. I think you're right about that, that we're going to probably need to use a combination of things to get it to work. Um, and, and we shouldn't be surprised at that. If you think about cancer, if you think about transplantation, those are all places that we use combinations to get things to work. Who should be screened and where should providers uh, refer their patients to that come down with type 1 diabetes? They should go to our website, which is Diabetes Trial Net, all one word, diabetestrialnet.org. And that will give them all the information they need, all of, our, all of the sites that participate. And it doesn't matter where they live uh, because we have uh, affiliated sites in virtually every community in the United States. So they can get hooked up with the system and, and the affiliated sites will, will, will identify them. And if they qualify, we can have them come to one of our centers uh, for uh, participation in the treatment program. Some of them are followed back at the affiliates. Some have to come to the centers periodically. Uh, and, and we pay for getting them to the centers uh, from, from the affiliated site. So if they go to the website, there's a, uh, there's a section for study participants. Uh, you can indicate you know, wh- what the situation is. You can look around at, at, uh, at what we are and um, what studies are going on. And uh, you know, we welcome everybody to, who has new onset diabetes to come and at least uh, let us know what's what's happening, and we're trying to, to get them into studies. Same site to go to for screening. Anybody who has a relative with type 1 diabetes uh, ought to be screened. 
we think in the long run we're going to start screening at some point individuals at the time of birth to see who has the genetic risk and then ask those who do to be periodically screened along the way. We're not quite there yet in, in implementing that as a, as a, as a national goal. Uh, but right now we are screening everybody who has a, a relative with type 1 diabetes. We want to screen up to the age of 45. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics and Psychology in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida, Dr. Jay Schuyler. Dr. Schuyler, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.